Okay, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight, and uh, glad everyone was able to make it here safely. No one had any problems on the roads? Nope? Okay, good. All right, we are in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We'll read the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study. Matthew 17, verse 1. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt? However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be together tonight. Lord, we thank you for the nice accommodations that we have. Lord, to be here uh, in a warm home, uh, very comfortable, and to be able to study your word, Lord, with your people. Father, we pray that you would bless our time, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, Lord, to rightly and to accurately divide it and to interpret it, Lord, as well, that we would apply it 
in the proper way so that we do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, help us tonight as we study, and we pray that you be honored in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And uh, here we have this account of, first, the transfiguration of Christ. And this falls on the heels of chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus stated that some of them who were standing there would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, when he stated that there, he doesn't mean uh, that they're going to live until Christ returns at his second coming. Otherwise, they would still have to be alive today. But he means it in the sense that there are some of those there who are going to have a glimpse, a foretaste of the glory that Christ will have whenever he is exalted or glorified. And I take the fulfillment of that to be what immediately follows. Because in the Gospels, the immediate uh, description or narrative that follows this statement is the transfiguration. And three of them went up on the mountain, and they were still alive at that time, and they did see the Son of Man in his glory. They saw him coming in his kingdom, what his kingdom would be whenever he was glorified and what it will be in the future. So it is a taste, a, a glimpse, a pledge of what it, it will be when Christ returns. And here in chapter 17, we have the account of the transfiguration. So it says there, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Here, Jesus takes only three of the disciples. Uh, he leaves the others behind, the other nine behind, and takes only these three. And these three uh, were the ones that were a part of the inner circle, right? There were certain privileges that Jesus gave to them that were withheld from some of the other disciples, such as the healing of Jairus' daughter. He took only these three with him in when he performed that miracle, and the others remained outside. And then also in uh, Matthew 26, 37, whenever he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he wants all of them to pray, but he takes the three with him deeper into the garden and wants them to pray and to be with him there. So Jesus is doing this with these three, but the purpose of it is for the confirmation of what is about to happen. Because every fact must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses, according to 2 Corinthians 13.1. And here we have three witnesses to this transfiguration, and they're going to write about this afterwards. Afterwards, specifically, Peter will mention this in one of his letters, that he was there and he beheld these things. And here also, it is being recorded in the Gospels, that this event truly did happen, and these three men are credible witnesses. These are not liars. They're not false witnesses. They're not deceivers, but they are credible witnesses who are testifying to the veracity of this event and to the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And this is what they see there on the mountain. So he takes them there up on this mountain, and then while he's there in verse 2, it says that he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. During his incarnation, Jesus' glory was concealed outwardly, right? When people saw him, they saw just another man, right? Just like you or me. Even though his glory was there, even though he had the glory, 
that he possessed from all eternity, yet people could not see it because it was clothed in his humility, right? He's in his humble state during the time of his incarnation. Now, it wasn't hidden from everyone because those who had faith could by faith behold the glory of Christ and the disciples had believed, they had come to know and understand that Jesus was indeed the Christ and that he was the Son of God. And this they understood and saw not because of the way he appeared to them visibly and physically, but they came to understand this by faith, by faith in his person and in his work and in his gracious words, that he indeed was the Son of God. But here he gives them a glimpse of his glory, visibly, outwardly, the manifestation of what he truly is, so that what they have beheld by faith, they are now having a glimpse of it by sight, right? By what they are seeing before their very eyes. He's transfigured before them, and his face is shining like the sun with all of its brilliance, with all of its brightness and glory, and his garments are as white as light. So he has this radiant glory that is coming out of him, through him, and this is what they are beholding there upon the mountain. In Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John sees a vision of the glorified Christ, he also describes him in this way. Revelation 1 verse 16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. His face was shining there like the sun. Well, this is what happens here. His face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are this dazzling white. So what, again, they have believed by faith, they are seeing there with their eyes. And they are eyewitnesses to this account, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Here, the apostle Peter states this. It says, For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here, this is the account that Peter is referencing, because it took place on the holy mountain. Though God did say that Jesus was his beloved son at his baptism, that didn't take place on the holy mountain. That was there at the uh, river. But here it's on the holy mountain that we heard this utterance. We heard it. We saw it with our own eyes. And we are testifying to you of the reality of what we saw. And this gives us even more confidence in the prophetic word. Right? Not that we didn't have confidence before. Yes, we had confidence before because these are holy prophets led by the Holy Spirit. And we know that they're speaking the word of God. But now, what they spoke of, what they predicted and prophesied, 
we have seen it with our own eyes. We saw it, we experienced it, and now we're telling you that this is indeed true, that he is the Son of God, and that he does possess this glory within himself. And this is why Jesus takes them there to show and to reveal to them this truth. And this hope, this glory, is what we long for, to see him as he is, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That one day in glory, in heaven, this is what we will experience. Day in and day out, we will see the Lord as he is. We will see Christ in his glory when we are in heaven with him. And everyone who has this hope, even now in this life, will purify himself even as he is pure. It is our seeing Christ that will bring about our own glorification according to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So there we will see him as he is. And then we will be, we will be like him, right? Not divine like him, but in his perfect humanity, his glorified humanity, we will be glorified in the same way. And we will have uh, glory with Christ for all eternity. But also notice in 1 John chapter 3, that the world doesn't know us because the world did not know him. They could not see his glory. The world could not. The disciples, they already had come to know of his glory by faith. Now they know it by sight. The world, they do not see his glory by faith, so they will not see it by sight in, in the good sense. They will see him and they will be destroyed by him, but they will not enjoy the presence of Christ for all eternity and see him in that way. And had the world recognized him, then they would not have put to death the Lord of glory. This is according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. They did not recognize him. When they saw Jesus, they just saw a mere man. They saw a poor man. They saw a man of no regard. Even his own people are uh, offended at him because they know him. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother and his brothers and sisters, aren't they here with us? We know who he is. Where did this man get this teaching? Right? Who does he think he is? Saying the types of things that he is saying. They could not overcome his humility, right? That he was of a low and a humble state. So they could not see past his humility to see his glory. The disciples saw his glory by faith. Now they have seen it by sight. We also see his glory now by faith in the word of God. And then one day we will see it by sight when the Lord returns. And then we will always be with the Lord. Then verse three, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Here, two men appear with Jesus on the mountain, and they are talking with him. And these two are Moses and Elijah. Now, it's not insignificant that it is these two. And the purpose, I think, behind that is Moses representing the law and Elijah being chief or one of the chief prophets. So their presence confirms that all of the law and all of the prophets are all testifying to what reality? The glory of Christ. This is what the law and the prophets exist for, to predict and to announce to us beforehand 
the glory of Christ. And now they appear with him while he's on the mountain transfigured to show that they are not opposed to the glory of Christ, but Moses and Elijah and all the other prophets are in perfect harmony and agreement with the glory of Christ. And this is why God called them as he did and equipped them as he did to write about these things. So they are not contrary and opposed to Christ and his glory, but are fully supportive of those things, which is very important for us to remember. The law, the prophets, the apostles, they are in perfect harmony with one another. And all of them are testifying to the same truths, to the same central message, that salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. Right. They are testifying to us that he is indeed the Son of God. And the only way that we can come to know God the Father is through the Son, through the Son. We see the glory of God through the glory of the Son. So there is not one message in the Old Testament and a new message in the New Testament, as if these things are at odds. They are in perfect agreement and perfect harmony with one another, and their appearance with Christ testifies to these things. Not only does their appearance, but even the very words of Christ. According to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17 Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there Jesus is very clear that his message, his ministry, is not contrary to the law and prophets, but rather in complete agreement. He came to fulfill. They predicted and he fulfilled it. And then the apostles announced these realities to us. And this is what people want to do. They want to put the law against Christ. Christ against the prophets. They're always doing this. The apostles against the prophets. But we shouldn't think like that, right? We shouldn't think, and again, as we've said on Sunday morning, many heresies, almost every heresy in the church exists because people do not understand the relationship between the Old Testament and between the New Testament. We have to understand their relationship. And we're getting a good lesson in that in Hebrews chapter one. And the whole book of Hebrews, because there the apostle is showing by quoting over and over and over from the Old Testament that what he's teaching, his doctrines, are not contrary to the Old, but they're being proven. He's, fat, uh, he's basing them in the teaching of the Old Testament. And this is what we see here in Matthew 17 as well. Now here it says that they appeared and they're talking with him. In Luke's gospel, it tells us what they're talking about. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 And one might say, well, why didn't Matthew say this? Well, he didn't need to. Luke already did, right? So they are in perfect harmony and agreement. And when we take all of them together, then we have everything we need to know about this event. Luke 9.31. We'll start in 30. Luke 9.30 says, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and his companions had become overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. So here it tells us in verse 31 that they're speaking of him, speaking to him of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. And this departure is his death, his death and his resurrection. That's what they're talking about. Now, why would they be talking about his death and resurrection? This is the critical event in the history of redemption, that everything is building up to this event. The incarnation is building up to this event. Everything of our salvation is contingent upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As it says in Romans chapter 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Our salvation rests upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what the prophets and the, uh, the law and the prophets were predicting these events. And so they're talking to him about these things, about his death and resurrection. Okay, then verse four. In Luke, it tells us that the disciples were asleep, right? that they had fallen asleep and then they awoke and they see this before them. Jesus transfigured and then the two men who are standing there talking to him. And then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, in again, Luke's gospel, it says that he did not realize what he was saying, right? It's one of those situations where you don't know what to say, but you feel like you need to say something. And typically you say something stupid, right? Or something that you shouldn't say. And he's not realizing the implications of what it is that he's saying. Now, on the good side, he doesn't say we need to make six tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for me, one for James, and one for John. He, he's not putting himself on the same level as these, as these. But the one that the focus should be on is Christ. Is Christ. And this is temporary. It is temporary. It is a momentary glimpse of his glory. But the only way that this can be realized in its finality is through his death and resurrection. And if they stay up on top of the mountain in three tabernacles, then how's Jesus going to die on the cross and be raised for our salvation? So the only way we can be with him in his glory and see him as he is, is through his death and resurrection. So again, it's a situation where Peter doesn't know what he's saying, right? It's not as bad as what we saw last time in chapter 16, where he's rebuking him for talking about his death but he's still not thinking through the implications. What is the purpose of Jesus doing this? It's not so that they can permanently stay on the mountain and be there with him in his glory, because if that happened, well, Peter, James, and John would be there only until their death. But then when they died, they'd go to hell forever. But it's only for them to see it momentarily, to see it so that it would be a pledge of the future, of the permanent state that Jesus enters into after his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. As they see him is as he is now, currently sitting at the right hand of God, and as he will be when he returns one day to take us to be with him. But all of that necessitates his death and his resurrection. So it's a temporary pledge, not a permanent state. Then verse 5, the correction. 
and the correction comes directly from God the Father. God the Father. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice uh, out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here, this cloud overshadows them. Overshadows shadows Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. All of them are there. And the cloud being a symbol or an emblem of the presence of God. Just as the cloud appeared uh, with them in the wilderness, led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, just as there was a cloud there on the Mount, Mount Sinai, whenever Moses went up and the word of God was revealed to him. So here, the cloud is there as a symbol or an emblem of the very presence of God. And God the Father speaks out of the cloud, right? He speaks and gives his own testimony concerning his son, concerning his son, and says, this is my beloved son. Now here, there is a distinction being made between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Because he doesn't say these are my beloved sons, but this is my beloved son, singular, singular. And this is the same as what we've seen in Hebrews chapter one. He's making that uh, contrast in Hebrews one between the angels and the son. Here, the contrast is between the son and Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are not on the same level as the son. They are not, not, not at all. Uh, he's making this distinction, showing, you know, that, that again, Peter is saying we should build three tabernacles for the three, but the father is saying, no, you need to listen to the son. He is my beloved son. And only Jesus, he can say this of. He can't say that of anyone else. He says it only of Christ. And then the only way that can be true of us is by faith in him. By our union with Christ, then we too can become beloved sons of God, but not in this way, right? We, we never become divine. We don't have divine a divine nature as Jesus does. And this is why it can only be said of him. It cannot even be said of the holy angels, right? God never calls them my beloved son in this way, but only of Jesus Christ. So the father is testifying to the deity of the son, that he is God in human flesh. He is my son and you should listen to him. Listen to him. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't read Moses or we shouldn't listen to the words of Elijah that are recorded in the word of God. But when Moses and Elijah are speaking to us, who is speaking through them? Christ. The Son, Jesus Christ. So ultimately, who are we listening to? We're listening to the Son. When we're interpreting Moses correctly, we're listening to the Son. And when we're interpreting Elijah and the other prophets correctly, we are listening to the Son. But he is the author. He is the one through his Spirit who is speaking to us in the prophets and the apostles because all of the revelation of God comes to us through the Son. He is prophet, priest, and king for his church. And as prophet, he is the supreme, the only true prophet by which all the other prophets speak because he is the one that reveals to us the will of God. And we should listen to Christ. Listen to Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 Verses 5 to 6 make this distinction between Jesus and Moses. Hebrews 3, 5 to 6. 
says, now, uh, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Moses is faithful as a servant or a slave, but he is not the heir of all things. He's not the son. Jesus is the son, and Moses serves the house for the benefit and the promotion of the son. That's why he exists, not to draw attention to himself, not to undermine the son. That would be a worthless slave. But he is the one promoting the son. And he rejoices that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And he's happy to be his slave and to work for his benefit, for the advancement of his kingdom and his estate. And Moses even said this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He told the people in his own generation that God was going to raise up a greater prophet than Moses. And he's the one that they should listen to. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him." So there, this is the, the ultimate prophet. The true prophet of God is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who inspired the other prophets to write and to say the words that they say. So he's not putting a distinction, or he's not putting, a, uh, putting Moses, Elijah, and Jesus at odds, but he is putting Jesus in the proper place in relationship to Moses and Elijah. They are inferior to Jesus Christ, and they existed to support and to promote his glory, right? His glory beforehand. And that's how Jesus interprets uh, Moses in John chapter 5, 45 to 47, when he is deriding the Jews there, saying to them that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that testify of me. But they refuse to come to him that they might have eternal life. And then he tells them, that he's not going to condemn them on the day of judgment, but someone else will rise up and condemn them. And who is the one that will condemn them? Moses. He says, Moses the prophet, on whom you've set your hope. Because who did Moses write about? Moses wrote about Christ, but they refused to believe in Christ. And then we know from John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Son explains the Father. right? And then the prophets are there to reveal and to write the words of the Son. What the Son tells them to say that is necessary to explain the Father, this is what the prophets write, but they are not writing on their own authority. They are writing under His authority. Jesus is the one telling them what they should write, and here we see that they are in perfect harmony and agreement. Then verse 6, When the disciples heard this, they fell 
face down to the ground and were terrified. Here, when the disciples hear the voice coming out of the cloud, they fall down and they are terrified. Terrified. Now, we have to ask, where is the fear of God today? Where is the fear of God in the churches today? Because people do not approach God in this way. People do not have fear of God. And here, their fear is terror. They're terrified because they think they're going to die. That they would hear the voice of God speaking to them is a terrifying thing for them, and they fall down in this way. I say this because, again, now certainly a lot of this is what they're seeing, what they're experiencing. They're, they're in the presence of God in that way, right? So naturally, we're not falling on our faces here because we're not seeing this experience that they had. Yet at the same time, we should not be flippant in our approach to God, right. as many people are today. As many people approach the things of God in a cavalier, flippant, easy peasy way, as if it's no big deal. And that God is just one of their buddies. He's their homeboy, whatever it is that they say, we shouldn't be like that at all. Rather, we should have fear of the Lord. We should have reverence and fear of God properly and understand who he is and who we are in relationship to him. That he is the creator and he uh, could destroy us at any minute. He is so holy and righteous and we are completely unrighteous. But we should come to him, but not flippantly, but with sobriety, knowing that the only way we can draw near to God is through the Son. Through the work of Christ, we draw near to Him. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, there the people understood this fear. Deuteronomy 5, 22 to 27. It says, these words of the Lord, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of thick gloom with a great voice and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. So there, these people rightly understand that they don't want God speaking directly to them. They want Moses to be an intermediary between them and God, right? Let him speak to you, then you tell us what it is that we need to do because they're afraid of him, right? And God recognizes this in verse 20, 28, that this is a good thing that they have spoken, that it's right for them to be thinking and acting in this way. So God commends them for this, though these were not even true believers, right. right? They were temporary, right? They had a moment of sobriety. They said some right things, but then later they grumble and they are the ones who fell in the wilderness, which is why God says in verse 29, oh, that they had such a heart in them at all time, right? What they are doing here temporarily, I wish this was true of them in their heart at all time. I know it's only temporary because of what they're seeing, 
And as soon as the vision is gone, they'll go back to their old sinful ways. And I wish that they had a heart like this at all times to fear me and keep my commandments. So we ought to have the fear of the Lord. If they who were temporary false believers had temporary fear of the Lord, then if we claim to be true believers, then we should have the fear of the Lord at all times. We should have that heart within us at all times. Okay, then verse eight, and then lifting up their eyes. Oh, verse seven. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So now the this uh, transfiguration has been accomplished. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud is gone. And now Jesus is returned back to what his normal form was before his transfiguration in his state of humility. And he tells them not to fear. And then now they're going to come down the mountain in verse nine. Verse nine says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has been risen from the dead. Here, this is similar to chapter 16, verse 20, that he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Right? This is not because Jesus doesn't want people believing in him, right? that people don't need to hear the gospel. Right? That's not the case at all. But he understands and realizes that the people themselves have unbiblical expectations, that their expectation of the Christ is not consistent with the word of God. This we saw in John chapter 6, because they wanted to seize him, take him by force, and make him king, right? But Jesus did not come to have some temporary earthly kingdom. He came to die on the cross, to be raised to new life, to ascend to the right hand of God, and then to receive the kingdom of God, which is the entire world will be his kingdom. So the people's expectation is not consistent with what was revealed in the prophets. And so he's telling them not to tell people these things, not because people don't need to know who the Christ is, but because he knows that you can't trust these people. They, you can't trust them and what they're going to do. And then specifically this, if they're telling people what they've seen, then there's the potential of persecution as well, that prematurely he might be put to death, right? Because they're going to say, these people are out of their mind. They're, they're madmen. Right, that they're saying these types of things. So Jesus is telling them, you've seen it and you needed to see it, but you need to wait and reveal these things until after the resurrection. Then speak openly and freely about what you saw there on the mountain after he's raised from the dead. Then verse 10, his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. The disciples are asking about this issue that the scribes in speaking of the coming Messiah, right? They are talking about Elijah coming before him. Why are the scribes saying that before the Messiah will be revealed, that Elijah must come first. They're asking him this question. Why are they saying and talking about these things? Which one shows that the scribes were indeed teaching the coming of the Christ. This was the common belief amongst the Jews, that the Old Testament did predict that the Christ was coming into the world and that before the Christ would be revealed, 
Elijah would come before him as his forerunner. And this is because of Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the prophet Malachi predicts Elijah to come before the day of the Lord, which is the coming of the Messiah. Because they also understood that the Messiah was God in human flesh. Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So there, before the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah would be revealed and his purpose was to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers through repentance, through the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the hearts of the fathers and children are going to be united together in common faith, right? So that instead of there being disharmony, they're going to be united in faith through his ministry, right? Through his preaching ministry. And his ministry was to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is why the scribes are saying these things. So is the teaching of the scribes in this aspect accurate? Yes, they are saying Elijah will come and that he will restore all things. So what they're saying is true of Elijah, even though they don't have true faith, right? Factually, they understand some factual things about the Bible, about the Old Testament, about the Christ, about Elijah, but they don't have true faith in these things, and the implications of it are not manifesting themselves in the fruits of repentance. That's the problem. And this is the case with many in our own day as well. Many people have factual information about the Bible. They know certain facts and even accurate facts about certain aspects of the Bible, though they don't have true faith in those things. And we don't want to be like that. We want to be true believers who are truly believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that that true faith is manifesting itself in godly living, godly living, which was lacking in the scribes and Pharisees. Then Jesus tells them, that Elijah has already come. Yes, it is true that Elijah must come first and that he will restore all things, but he already came and they did not recognize him. They didn't understand the significance of the person of John the Baptist. Just like they don't understand the significance of Jesus Christ. They don't see his glory and they didn't see John the Baptist and understand him rightly, right? Because they didn't understand Elijah correctly. They don't understand the Bible. So yes, there is some factual information, but whenever it is being manifested in their own presence, they can't see it because they do not have true faith. And what did they do to John? They did to him whatever they wished. They persecuted him. They reviled him. They said all manner of evil against him falsely. He was falsely imprisoned, and then ultimately his head was cut off. Right? They did whatever they wanted to him. They persecuted him, and then ultimately they took his life. And who wants to have their life taken away by getting their head chopped off? Nobody does, but they did it to him, right? Whatever they wanted to do, they did. And this is what they're going to do to the Son of Man, to, to Jesus. The same thing that they did to John. They chopped his head off. Jesus, they will crucify on the cross. So we shouldn't be surprised. They've already done this once. In Matthew chapter 11... Matthew 11, verses 7 
to 19, Jesus speaks of these things. Matthew eleven seven says, As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violent, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who has come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So, just as they did to John, so they will do to Jesus. Right? False charges, lame excuses to not listen. This is because John and Jesus are preaching the same message. Right. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They hate repentance. They love their sin and they don't want to repent. And that's why they have to find a reason to reject John, which is he has a demon. Because look at him. Look at the way he lives. Right? This man's crazy. He's a lunatic. Why else would a man live out in the wilderness like this unless he has a demon? And then with Jesus, it was, oh, look, look at this man. He's a drunkard and a glutton. He goes to, uh, you know, he's eating with people. He's going into their homes. He's attending these feasts. Look at him. Look at this profane man. We shouldn't listen to him either. Because they hate the message, they have to find a way to reject it. And their common practice is to throw mud on the messenger. And then if you can discredit the messenger, you don't have to listen to what they say. And that's what Jesus is predicting. And the disciples understand that he's speaking about John the Baptist when he's talking about Elijah. Not that John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated, but rather John the Baptist was in the spirit of Elijah. He had the same kind of ministry, prophetic ministry as Elijah. Elijah and John are two separate people, but John had the same ministry, the spirit of Elijah. Then verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, and as often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Here, having come down to the mountain, back down to the people where they are at, the other nine disciples that had stayed, there is a ruckus going on between them. And if we go over to Mark, there's an argument going on between Jesus's disciples and the scribes and Pharisees, that they're arguing about these things. And there's a large crowd that's gathered around this. So there's a big ruckus going on at this time. 
Mark 9, 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. He asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So here we see that there is an argument going on, a crowd this is taking place between Jesus' disciples and the scribes, them being unable to deliver this boy from this demon, right? And then they're arguing as to why they were not able to do it. This leads Jesus to make this pronouncement about the unbelieving perverted generation. How long am I going to have to put up with you people? Because your faith is so weak, right? Your faith is so weak. And all these types of things are happening. So he is showing his disgust at what he's seeing in his very presence, both from the crowds, the scribes, even his own disciples, that their faith is so little. But Jesus has compassion. He has compassion and mercy upon the boy and upon the father. And he rebukes the demon, and then the demon comes out of the boy, even though it convulses him, and they think that he's dead, but Jesus delivers him from this demon. Then the disciples ask him why they were unable to drive it out. And that's when Jesus tells them it's because of the littleness of their faith. Very small faith. And that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do great things. You can say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will be done. Nothing will be impossible. Not that a person with faith can go around and willy-nilly do things like this. Pick up houses, uh, move mountains here and there, uproot trees by faith. He doesn't mean that, but he means it according to the will of God. Nothing will be impossible if you're exercising faith according to the will of God. And what was lacking in the disciples, it was their faith. Their faith and their dependence on God. Because Jesus says this kind cannot go out except by prayer and fasting. Right. Meaning that this demon was a very powerful demon a very strong demon, and this lack of prayer and fasting shows that they're not depending on the Lord. They're doing it in their own strength. But how can we deliver someone from a demon in our own strength? We can't. We don't have the power to. Only God has the power to. 
but we have to rely on him. We can't rely on ourselves, but they're not doing that. They're not praying and fasting for God to work. Instead, they're arguing and bickering with the scribes. Then verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So here he's predicting for them again, just as he did in chapter 16, 21 to 23, his impending death. What's going to happen when they go to Jerusalem? He's preparing them for this reality so that when it happens, they're not thrown off guard. Though they will be temporarily, ultimately they will not. And had Jesus not warned them so many times, what would it have done to their faith? Right? So he's telling them these things in preparation for what's going to happen when they go to Jerusalem. And he's speaking very clearly and forthrightly about his death and his resurrection. They know what he's talking about because they're grieved. They're deeply grieved that he's saying these things and that he's predicting to them his death. But their grief is going to be turned into joy, right? It's going to be turned into joy when the implications and when the reality of his resurrection takes place. Then it'll be joyous, though temporarily it'll be grief. Then verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to them, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw a hook in and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Here, when they come to Capernaum, which is Jesus, their, the hometown of where many of them are from and where Jesus does a lot of his ministry is in Capernaum, the tax collectors are collecting the two drachma tax. And they approach Peter and ask him, does your teacher, is he going to pay his taxes? Which shows us that everyone hates paying taxes, right? They're taxing them back then. They're taxing us today. What can you do, right? It's inescapable, unavoidable. So they're there with their hands out, getting the two drachma tax, which was two days wages. Now, I'd be very content to pay two days wages as my taxes for the year. But alas, that's not what we're doing today. So anyway, so he wants to know if the teacher pays the tax, right? Is he going to pay the tax? Uh, whether this is an honest question or whether this is a question to try to uh, entrap him, right? To accuse him of sedition, uh, being a usurper and an overthrower of the legitimate role of the government or of the temple, it, it doesn't say. So whatever it was, the question is presented to Peter, about this tax. And Peter replies, yes, he will pay his taxes, right? He will pay the taxes. And then he comes into the house and Jesus asks him these questions. What do you think, Simon? So he's asking him, what are your thoughts on this issue? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Right, the kings of the earth, those who are in authority, who have the right to issue taxation, who do they collect their taxes from? Do they tax their sons or do they tax strangers? That'd be you and me, the commoners. Right? The sons are exempt. Right? Their friends are exempt. Their family, you know, this is, it's all 
buddy-buddy system, right? They're all in it together. They're all uh, getting fat and rich together on our expense. So who do they collect from? And Peter says, from the strangers. And then Jesus makes the implication that then the sons are exempt, right? This is the way it is, generally speaking, in taxation, right? The people, the commoners, the strangers, right? Those who are not related to the household of the king, they're the ones that pay taxes. But the sons, those who are in his family, they're exempt from these things. He doesn't levy taxes against them because they're his family and he's not going to do so. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making here? Well, in terms of rights, who is the king of kings and lord of lords? Who is the king of this world and the king of the universe? Right? Isn't Jesus Christ the king? So whether we're talking about the civil authorities, Jesus is the ruler over them, or whether this is the temple tax and it's a religious tax, well, who is the ruler of the temple? Who's the one that gave the instructions for the temple? Who is the ultimate high priest of the temple? Jesus Christ. So either way you slice it, Jesus Christ is the one who is on the very top of the pyramid in terms of authority and the one by which the kings of the earth or the temple issues taxes to the people is based upon the authority of Christ. So is Christ obligated to pay these taxes by basis of his rights as king of kings and lord of lords? No, he is not obligated to pay these things. And if he's not obligated, neither are his sons. And who are his sons? Peter and the other disciples and his people, right? His people, right? They are the ones who are the rightful heirs of the kingdom of God. And who will inherit the world? Jesus Christ will, and we will inherit it with him. However, this reality is a, a future reality. And currently, we are to submit to legitimate authorities. And that's why Jesus says, however, so that we do not offend them, go into the sea, throw the hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when it opens its mouth, you'll find the shekel, take that and give it to them for you and for me. So that he doesn't give offense, right? In terms of rights, he's free. He doesn't have to. But so that he doesn't give offense to the people, he is going to pay his taxes. And he says, go get the shekel and pay it for you and for me, right? Both of our taxes. He covers Peter's as well. He doesn't want them to charge him with being a seditious man, for being a usurper, someone who's a rabble rouser, who's constantly trying to overthrow the government and doesn't recognize legitimate rule and legitimate institutions that God has instituted in this world and in our society. So Jesus pays his taxes so as not to give offense. And in the same way, what should we do? We should pay our taxes, right? We should pay our taxes and submit to those proper legitimate authorities that God has placed, even though ultimately we are sons of the kingdom. And ultimately one day we will inherit the earth. And these rulers will bow down at our feet one day. And they will have to confess that God has loved us. But now, because this has not yet been revealed, we should submit to them in the proper way, right? In whatever is lawful and then in whatever taxes they levy to support the legitimate functions of the government, then we ought to pay our taxes in that way. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And Jesus is doing this Though, in some regards, what the Roman, if it's, if it's the Romans he's paying the taxes to, then there are things about them that are sinful and evil, such as their paganism, 
such as some of the practices that they promote. Yet he still recognizes that even though it is a pagan ruler, there is still some good and legitimacy that comes from them in the suppression of evil. Or if it's the temple tax, well, the ones that are running the temple at this time, what are they going to do to Jesus? They're going to crucify him. They're the ones that lead and instigate his own death. So they're not legitimate people. They're very corrupt. Yet he also pays his temple tax as well because the temple still needs to be supported and there is still some legitimacy and some good that comes out of it, though the men that occupy its positions may be corrupt themselves. And this is the way that we ought to think about the government and the things that we see, whatever legitimate institutions that God has instituted in this world. Romans 13, 6 says, For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we ought to pay tax revenue, give fear and honor to those it is due, which would be those who are governing authorities over us. Then a couple of examples. First uh, Corinthians eight thirteen. Here, these are examples of the apostle not exercising his rights for the benefit of others. And that's what Jesus is doing as well. 1 Corinthians 8, 13 says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So does the Apostle Paul have any problem with eating meat? No. And is it a right that he has, that he can exercise if he pleases? Yes. But he's willing to give up and forego that right for the sake of a brother. He's not going to exercise it for their sake. And in this way, Jesus is foregoing his rights so as not to give offense to those who are in authority. Then 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 9, 12 says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. There, the Apostle Paul had a right to receive material things from the church because he was delivering spiritual things to them, but he didn't exercise that right. He had it more than anyone else, but he didn't use the right. He gave it up so that there wouldn't be a hindrance to the gospel so that people wouldn't charge him with being a teacher for money. Then verse 15 says, But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. So I'm using none of these things. These rights that are mine, I'm not using them, exercising them, but rather I'm <coughs> foregoing them. And then also Romans 14 and verse 21 says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. So there he's giving up rights for the sake of a brother, for the sake of a, a fellow brother in Christ. And in this way, Jesus is foregoing what is his right so as not to give offense to the authorities, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities, whomever it is, and not to bring uh, offense on the gospel because of those things. So we ought to live in the same way as well. All right, so we'll stop there. Look at that. We did a whole chapter tonight.
right? We haven't done that in a couple of uh, times, but we did tonight. So we got a few minutes for questions or comments. So um, if anyone has any questions about the study, 